Guys, now it's actually time for our interview. Bob, man, I want to thank you for joining us to Vibe in the Cage. Yes, thank my, you. My pleasure to be here. Um, we're just going to conduct here a classic cage interview, man. Um, but first, I was wondering if you could just tell us about your background, um, some things you might be bringing to the cage. Sure. I mean, I, I've uh, been a lawyer for about 33 years. Uh, went to St. John's Law School and went to SUNY, undergrad, SUNY Albany undergrad and uh, had my own law practice on uh, Staten Island for a number of years. And uh, now I'm a, a, a judge here in New York City. Um, I, uh, I, at one point in time, I was working for a Senate, State Senator John Markey, who was the longest serving state senator in uh, New York history. He served for 50 years in the New York State Senate. And I was his legislative counsel for 18 years, for 18 of those years. Uh, the last 18, year, uh, 18 years he was in office. And with that, I helped run his campaigns. And I was also um, in charge of all of his legislation up in, uh, up in the Capitol, up in Albany. And I used to have to travel back up there, back and forth for those 18 years uh, while the, the state legislature was in session. And then um, eventually I became uh, chairman of the Richmond County Republican Party and uh, ran for office twice for New York State uh, Assembly, New York State Senate. Uh, actually, three times I also ran for uh, New York City Council on, a, on the Staten Island Secession Party uh, line years ago. And, uh, and then finally ran for, uh, for judge and won. So the fourth time was the charm. Yeah. <laughs> nice, nice. Yeah, and I've been doing that for about a year now. All right. Now, is it correct to say that you have a obligation to to be impartial when like answering questions? Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, as a judge, it, it's unethical for me to make any comments on any pending uh, pending issues. So, okay. you know, political issues, uh, you know, things that are in current events, um, because at some point in time, some that that issue may come before me in some way, shape, or form. So uh, I have to avoid commenting on or, or you know, indicating any bias in one way or the other. So uh, in that regard, yes. Uh, but certainly I can talk about you know, things in the past and, and uh, my experiences, but I can't, can't go too far into current events. Yeah, that's still dope, man. Um, we, we have this first question here. We have a total of eight. Um, first, that's it? We're just... <laughs> trust, me, <laughs> trust me, man. Questions will live for minutes here. Um, so the first question would be, you went into it a little bit. This is more so about you and your position. Um, I was mad curious, man, the process of becoming a judge, obviously you just said there were election, but I looked it up. Um, there were, you got a total of like 10,000, nearly, I think 10,059 votes. And the other guy was only like 509 votes away. Like, how was that experience? Well, you know, the... The area of, of Staten Island that I live in is uh, is very you know people say that it's it's um, it's heavily democratic, but I, th I think in, in my experience in all of the different elections that I've um, been involved in, uh, all the races have always been very close. And um, you know, I, I, like I said, uh, the assembly race that I I lost uh, I lost by a small margin of votes. Uh, I think in my, in the Senate race, I ran, I ran a primary to, to run for New York state Senate to replace Senator Markey. And I think I lost that, that race by about 550 votes. 
And this one I won by about 509. So it was, uh, you know, it's always been a kind of a close race. And uh, I got to tell you, it's, it's, it's it, your heart goes high and low during the course of election night, as you've seen those numbers come in, you know. Yeah, man. I one, one, minute you're, one minute it's uh, you're high as a kite, you think you're going to win. One minute, they, you know, they plummet when you see your, your opponent's numbers come in more than yours. Uh, this last time was exhilarating because uh, when I went, ran, uh, I'm sorry, when I won, you know, it, it was it was phenomenal. It was just it was just trying to be on the on the winning side, which was great. I, I'll tell you a quick story about that. We were um, we were outside the restaurant that we were going to have our victory party in, and we were looking at the vote tallies on someone's uh, phone. And uh, we were out on the street, and we, you know, we, want, we wanted to wait outside to go in until we knew the news whether we were going to win or lose. So uh, we had about seventy-five percent of the precincts reporting. Um, we were we were up, and uh, then it got. We said, "Why well, are right, wait?" We're not up substantial en- enough number in order to be able to go in. So it was it was like you know seven hundred fifty votes, and then um, with about eighty percent coming in, we were up about about a uh, thousand votes. And then with um, about 85% of the votes in, it came up to about um, about 1,500 votes. So we said, okay, good. This looks like, this looks like really good. <laughs> let's go in now. We'll, we'll announce that we're a victory. We got 85% of the precincts in. Let's go. So we start to go inside. And all of a sudden, it was, it was like, I, I don't know if you guys have ever seen the movie Brigadoon, but it was an old movie. And, and uh, all of a sudden, you know, the, the, we start hearing what sounded like it was um, – um, like fife and drums, and it was. Uh, I'm like, what is that? And there was a uh, there was a piping band that was practicing in a nearby bar, and and my campaign manager ran in and got the guys to march in, and, and I marched into a parade into my with this, with these guys, totally random guys who were practicing in a bar on the, <laughs> nearby, yeah. and uh, they, we came marching into a parade of the fife and drum, uh, walking into the into the uh, into the victory party. It was it was pretty cool. Um, yeah, so man, I'm making weird. my speech, and in the middle of the speech, I see my camp my campaign manager disappear. I'm like, what the heck? Where did he go? Where is he? I'm looking all over. And once the speech is over, everybody's thanking me. I can't find him. Can't find him. Can't find him. He was outside because more returns came in, and the numbers were starting to drop. So we were up by about two thousand votes, and it had gone back down to a thousand. And he was panicking outside on the phone. What's going on? What's going on? What's going on? <laughs> so like, we really didn't find out until about two weeks later. Wow. Which is, you know, I mean, well, it's, it's sort of consistent with what the country just went through with waiting for days and days and days in the presidential election for people to, you know, to tally up the votes because it takes time. You have to wait for all those mail-in votes and everything to come in. It just takes time. Does it feel uh, any it, different, though, when you're the candidate? That waiting? It does. I mean, because, you know, listen, it's, your future is the one that's on the line. It's, it's you know, it's nerve-wracking. Um the good news was that I, I had really knowledgeable people, and I had been through the, the the situation before myself, so I knew exactly what was in store and what was next. Uh, so, in that regard, it, it made it easier for me to to you know kind of compose myself and, and understand the expectations of what was going to be happening in the next few days. That I wasn't going to get an answer that night or the next morning. It was going to be you know days ahead. Um, but I, you know, in the end, it, it all worked out really well, and it was good. Yeah, that's Good. that's clutch, man. Um, wow. What's also clutch though is you know like a lot of times in sports, like players come up clutch, and I think that that's Josh's big second question here that that's going to hit hard. Okay, um, okay. Uh, if you could describe 
president-elect Joe Biden and President Donald Trump as a sports guy, like if any former sports athlete, uh, what would they be or who would they be and why? Who would they be and why? Wow. Yeah, if you could like, if you could like relate them to like a, just like any athlete that you can remember, like well, any big listen, personality. I, I, I could say, I, I could say, in my opinion, uh, Joe Biden is like a, uh, a Joe DiMaggio, uh, okay. only because he's got a tremendous amount of class, and he's been around for a long period of time. You know, he's uh, he's got a good record that way. Um, Donald. Trump, I wow, as a sports figure, as a sports figure, you know, um, wow, yeah, I don't have one for that. Okay, I don't have one yeah. for Trump. Yeah, he, he's man. hard. Yeah, yeah, we can oh, give yeah. our takes, and we I think I have a good one. I would yeah. after the recent phone call to the Georgia Secretary of of State, I believe, I would compare him to when Sammy Sosa's bat exploded with rubber balls. Okay. That's what I would compare. <laughs> I, would compa- I would make him Sammy Sosa. That would be it. You know, I, I, I'd almost think of him as, uh, I, maybe I'd reconsider, maybe i think of him as like a Charles Barkley. He's a guy who just kind of says his mind and, you know, it could be anything. You never know what he's going to say. Yeah. You know, Charles Barkley is definitely yeah. an interesting guy. Yeah. I, I got one for Biden though, right? So Biden, he came up clutch. Right, he's the clutch master. Sure, who knows who else could have done it? I have to say, Wilmer Flores. Wilmer Flores, the former New York man. <laughs> really, I have to, man. That there's oh no one more clutch. You love Wilmer Flores for some reason. So, yeah. I'll tell you who Trump isn't though, and that's LeBron, because LeBron loves China, and Trump does not. That's true. That's facts. That, that's, <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Um, but. That leads us into our third question, um, which is Josh and I were curious, man. Um, if you naturally you're a judge here in Staten Island, New York City in general, I should say, um, would you be a judge for in the Chinese Communist Party um, purely because you would have a lot more power than you would over here, man? Hey, listen, you never want to talk about about. I don't think that there's any any comparison to the United States of America in that regard, because, you know, the freedom and, and the, and the justice system and the rule of law in the United States is so much different and, and so much better than what goes on in China. Um, so, you know, in, in that regard, I don't know the specifics of what, what that, what that would be, but, you know, I, I can imagine that when you compare the United States to any communist country, uh, <laughs> the rule of law is going to be substantially better uh, in the United States. And I'm rather not, I'd rather be a judge here than anywhere in the world. Yeah, that's fair. Um, the uh, the official like communism. Definitely. The official stance of the cage is very anti-communism. Very much yeah. so. <laughs> very much so. Yes. Um, Glad to hear that. But, I mean, you're talking about in China where the CCP really controls the justice system, and that's like some politi- politicization of the uh, <laughs> the justice system there. Do you see that at all in America? Politicization? No, I. When it comes to that, I mean, again, that's uh, it's not. It's difficult for me to comment on that. But no, I don't. Yeah. I don't see it. I, I don't see it that way. Um, okay. I do see what's going on in China and, and what they're trying to do with Taiwan and rounding up the dissidents and, and be based upon the fact that they were trying to uh, they were trying to run elections over there. And, and, and I see that the threats that they're making 
to the freedoms of, of the Chinese people, uh, whether it's in Taiwan or in China or anywhere else, and, and, the, and the threats that they're now making to the, to the businesses and some of the major corporations that are in China because they want the, they want to maintain control. And I, I, I see I try to compare that to the United States, and it's it's um, you, you, that would never be permitted. So the the role of politics in the justice system is relatively large in China, but relatively small in America. Would you say it even exists at all in America? Well, I would say it only in the fact that that you need politics in order to be able to run for uh, any office, and even even that as a judge. So, you know, I, I needed to be able to run in my situation. Uh, I needed the, the the nomination from a political party, um, and I needed uh, political. Uh, political people to help me run the campaign and I needed to be able to raise money and get votes and, and appeal to voters, which is all the political process. Yeah. So in that regard, there, there is that some element of it involved uh, with being a judge in the United States. But as far as getting a phone call from a politician to say that this is the kind of decision that you should make, no, that's, I, I, that's, not, the, that's not something that exists in the United States. That's something that I've ever heard of as a lawyer and it's it's not something that I certainly have never experienced that as a judge. Cool. I mean, this does lead to our next question. Actually, real um, quick, if I do have yeah. or before we go to that one. And I apologize if if you uh if you might not be able to answer this, but uh how do you feel about the uh like the, the most kind of at least I don't, I'm not sure if this is only a recent practice because I'm only 20 uh and haven't done much research about it, but how do you feel about justices uh at least in the last couple years retiring early, like Supreme Court justices, because I know, I believe it was Justice Kennedy that made room for um, Neil Gorsuch. And then I believe now there's rumors that the Democrats are trying to get Justice Meyer to retire so they can put someone in younger, similar to what Trump did with the last three. Do you think that's a good practice or do you believe that Supreme Court justices should be there as long as possible? I'm not going to comment on on that, only to say this, that, that the federal Federal judgeship process, I think, is is a good one in the fact that the justices can stay in office as long and stay in their positions as long as uh, they feel that they're capable and as long as they want to, uh, because no one can force you out and and you you're not therefore subject to the whim of any um, elected official uh, or a- anyone else that would control your position and therefore you feel that that would have to influence any decision that you would make and I think that that's a good thing. In, in our judiciary and in our democracy. So I, I think yeah. that's really good. Um, now, whether or not an individual decides for whatever reason they decide they want to step down at any point in time, um, you know, in, in the state of New York, you know, the, uh, the average term of, of a judge or the term of a judge, um, when they hit 70 years of age, uh, their term ends regardless of whether or not how much time they have left in their judicial term. So for example, I ran for 10 years um, and if my term were to end, it's not going to, but it, it, if it were to end, uh, at my 70th year, then, then, um, I would have to apply to be recertified and, and, but technically I would, I would be losing, I would be, have to step down from that position. Now, some judges decide at 68 years of age that they don't want to do this anymore and they can, they can step down. They, that's, that's up to them. Um, I think that that's. You know, one of the things in the United States that, that we have is that kind of a term so that you're not influenced by outside forces. And I think that's a very good thing. Yeah. And that, again, is the next question. We, Josh and I are privileged enough to 
deal with one side of the political party that um, currently believes uh, that the justices who ruled on the Trump lawsuits against the election are controlled by the CCP. Um, and that's what the the dude we know thinks. That is a um, general belief in a certain right-wing conspiracy. <laughs> um, we would just like to ask you if you yourself are controlled by the CCP. <laughs> I'm not even going to go there. That's, that's, that's not, a, I think that's a ridiculous question and I'm not going to answer <laughs> it. Answer. Perfect. That's, that's, that's perfect what someone answer. who's controlled would say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, no. How, how many of your stocks are in Chinese companies? <laughs> okay. Again, Josh. again, gentlemen, we can eat, we can cut this off now, or we can we can go to something more serious. So it's up to yeah, you. Yeah, of course, of course. Josh, what's the uh, the sixth question? The sixth question. Okay. Yeah. Uh, what is widely unknown to the general public about local politics? About local politics. Yes. Again, I can't really, I can't really talk to you about local politics. Um, well, I just mean, as I, far as I can tell you, I can tell you in as, how it functions. Well, I, I can only tell you in as much as the amount of work that politicians have to do is not something that's understood, I think, by the general public. Um, and and by that I mean the amount of time that has to be spent with campaigning, with fundraising, with uh, governing with attending all of the different functions that a elected official has to attend to, um, whether it be you know uh, uh, a boy sick out uh, crossing over party or a fundraiser for a uh, a not profit entity, or uh, it could be a political event or a political fundraiser or dinner. Um, you know the expectation is that you know when the elected official is invited, they they should be there. And, you know, you don't realize that there are so many of those events going on at the same time. And, and people are saying, well, I, I'm disappointed that my congressman or my senator or my assembly person, you know, didn't show up at this particular event. And, and it's because it's just such demand on their time. Um, so whereas they think, well, they got nothing to do. The, the Senate's not in session today. Yeah, but there's a lot of other things that have to go on. I, I think people don't understand the commitment that public officials have to make in order to be able to do that. Um, they just think it's a show up a couple of, you know, once or twice a week and, and you and you got nothing else to do. And it's just not the case. Yeah. And would you say to an extent then uh, the politicians themselves are very much public figures and have to spend a lot of their time communicating to the public. Do you think a lot of what they do themselves is really dependent on their team? Oh, absolutely. And the team depends upon them. I mean, working for Senator Markey for all those years, Listen, you know, you get your signals, you you understand what the what the the message is by by you know dealing with your principal. As as his counsel, I would often have to represent him at some of these events, and and you have to understand where he stood on the different issues before the uh, the before the legislature at the time, because you would go to events and and you know if you're representing him in front of the local chamber of commerce, they may want to know his his position on a particular tax uh, proposal. Um, and you have to be able to represent that and represent, represent him on that. And in, in that regard, to the extent that he can't be in so many places at the same time, he has to rely on his staff to be able to do that. Absolutely, that's absolutely true. That's, that, I would say that that's a, a true statement. Um, 
Awesome. So one of these questions we were having was uh, when you did run, naturally not for your judgeship, if that's what it's called, or your position as a judge. Judgeship is fine, yeah. Judgeship, cool. That's a cool word. Um, so as far as that, you weren't really um, evaluated based on your political beliefs. Um, but when you did run for the state assembly position, um, that's what you were evaluated on largely by the public. We were curious if during that time uh, you ever felt political pressure to any abandoned views you did have or any morals at all um, to shift your uh, ability to p- appeal to more people. Abandon my morals? No, I never felt a, a, a need to abandon my morals. I felt a need to explain them. Um, and that's not always an easy thing to do because the people that sometimes the people that you're talking to don't agree with those particular positions and they feel adamant about it and they don't understand that, you know, the, the essence of democracy is compromise. Um, and the problem that many people have now is whether they're on the left or the right, they believe that they're entirely right and that everyone should abide by their particular principle or their particular belief. And that's not how democracy works. That's, you know, it's, it's ruled by the majority, not by the right. And Mike, in this circumstance, in democracy, Mike uh, does not make right. So just because you feel that, you know, that your position is superior to that of another person doesn't mean that you're right or they're right. Now, in, in that regard, you have to explain your positions as you're running for office. And as I did. Um, when I was running for assembly and for Senate um, and it can get animated. It can get, people can get upset with you for your positions. And, you know, everybody's got to understand that, but understand that this is in a civilized society. That's, you're just going to debate things and you may not come out agreeing one another with one another, but everybody's got their right to their own opinion. Um, and, you know, that's, you get, you get to vote and make that decision as to whether or not you agree with it. If you, Uh, don't like my position with regards to a particular issue, then that's certainly something then that there's a reason that you vote against me, but um, uh, then, you know, that doesn't mean that, that I have to agree with what you have to say. And and I think once people start to realize that, that the, that the essence of democracy is compromise again, uh, then, then things will become easier to address and to fix. But until that happens, and everybody just stands on their, you know, on on their side and not willing to look at the other person's viewpoint. That'll be a hard. It's going to be hard for this country to resolve the problems that it has. Yeah, and when you were running, though, your side, your goal was to make your side the majority of votes um, in order to win. And that's just how the democratic nature of our system is structured. But did you ever have a time where there was a stance you previously had, but in order to appeal to the public, shift a stance on a certain issue to gain more votes? I, I don't think I, I did that, no. But I would disagree with your premise in, in the fact that it, it's, not about, it's not about convincing most people to, to accept your ideals. It's, the idea is that you want to encourage the most amount of people who support you to come out to vote. Yeah, because, I mean, we don't have 100 percent voting in this country. And, you know, so you're trying to just ensure it's not necessarily the case that it, 
it's like the old saying, you know, I don't have to, when the bear is chasing you, I don't have to be the fastest person. I just don't have to be the slowest. It's kind of the same thing. You want to get as many of your people out to vote, just as long as it's more than the other person's. Um, it doesn't, you don't have to convince people necessarily to swing sides as much as it is to make sure that those people that are willing to support you will come out to vote and that there are more people that support you than support your opponent. Um, and, and that's, that's what the politician, that's what the, the candidate is looking to do in those circumstances. Okay. Um, why, why do you believe you lost your, um, your election for, I believe it was state assembly, correct? Well, both, right? Or both. The Senate yeah, I don't, and the yeah. assembly? Yes. Well, for the, for, the Senate, for the state assembly race, it was a question of numbers. Um, that was the year that Hillary Clinton was running for uh, New York State's New York uh, Senator from the state of New York, U.S. Senator from the state of New York. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And we did not anticipate, my campaign did not anticipate the number of voters that would come out to support Hillary Clinton. It was more than, than had been historically uh, the historically voted in the past. Yeah. Um, so that was something that, you know, we, there was no way to foresee. And I mean, you so know, that's the national politics influencing the local ones. Yeah. No, the more people that come out to vote. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, so the, the you know, the, think of it this way, that the historical numbers of, of people that, that came out to vote in this year's election were, you know, it was, it was one of the highest elect, uh, highest, um, vote counts in the history of the United States. Um, and when that happens, you can't necessarily predict what's going to happen. And that's where polls and everything else, are, that's why they're so hard to be able to, to, um, to ascertain their credibility. But, you know, in that circumstance, that was, that was part of it. I mean, we had a great message. We did a lot of, a lot of positive things. Um, I had the governor of the state of New York, Governor Pataki, come down campaign for me in Staten Island in order to drum up vote uh, and, and, and uh, get people out to vote, which was incredible. And it was awesome. And, and uh, we came close, but uh, uh, we're not, we were not successful. Um, in the case of the, um, of the Senate race uh, as to why I lost that race. Um, again, it was an instance of trying to pull out the vote, um, pull out the number of votes. That was a primary. It was not a general election, so it was held in September, and yeah. um, it was just trying to convince enough people to come out to vote. And the areas that I was focused on, there were not as many Republican um, uh, voters as uh, in the areas of the South Shore where my opponent was. So um, you know, it's just a question of numbers, and uh, my numbers didn't didn't, uh, didn't come up. When you run that locally, um, do you feel as though you have more influence? on the margins because again like one man's effort grinding on the ground can contribute to 500 more votes yeah um, and that's not really the case on the national level if joe biden made more of an effort to, uh, on the local level it's all about knocking on doors and meeting yeah. people i mean that's really what it comes down to and and the more time and i, and I think that i was ex- successful as i was because of the fact that i did that um, I knocked on doors, and I think that that's also one of the reasons why my judicial campaign was successful is because I was able to knock on doors and meet people. So, yeah, that that's part of it, especially on a lo- local level. Yes, it, that that is definitely more influential, and and you can run that kind of a campaign where you're, you know, meeting voters and trying to convince them to pull you to to come out and vote. Yeah, I think that that's a, a big part of the strategy of the campaign. 
you know, whereas it, you're right, I think it's that's not easy to do on a national level. Yeah, because um, there's so many forms of communication with the media. And the problem is even on a national level, when you're holding rallies, the, the, the fact that you're holding rallies doesn't mean that you're influencing voters. It means that the existing voters that are supporting you are coming out there to vote to, to your rally. And the trick is then to try to convince those people to go out and tell their 10 friends to go out and vote for you. Uh, and that's what those rallies are generally for. Um, so, you know, in this, in, in this circumstance, you know, I'll walk down a block and, and I'll knock on when I was running for judge or assembly or, or Senate, I'd knock on some doors and, and the people that I got positive responses from, I would say, please make sure you tell your neighbors um, because that that's, what's going to pull out the vote. And the fact that, you know, uh, Jim next door said, Hey, you know, I met this guy, Bob, and he, uh, he seemed like a decent guy. You know, he's, he's running for office. Uh, you should look into it. Um, that's going to have that word of mouth is going to help any campaign more. I think, I think that's even better than, than, you know, a mailer into your, you know, a piece of mail going into the house or an advertisement in the newspaper. I think that kind of, in, that personal interaction is, is going to be a stronger, way to influence a voter than, you know, than any mail piece or any ad that you could see. Yeah. Um, and Josh, unless if you have anything to say, I'm thinking about the last question. Um, um, actually, yeah, real quick. I, um, do you believe that going on to your, to your point with local elections and how it's all about knocking on doors and stuff, do you think COVID is hurting people's ability to correctly choose a representative that like, that actually like represents their, their political beliefs? Do you believe it's harder to convey a message on like video chats and like limited human contact like that? Do you think it's hurting that? I, I don't know if it's hurting the ability of, of, a, of the voters to, to, to make decisions, but I do think that it, it hurt the ability of candidates to, uh, to reach out and, and deliver their message. I would, I would agree with that premise. Okay. Um, you know, if, if you're not able to go to door to door, if people are, are reluctant to open their front door to speak to you because of COVID, um, then it certainly makes it much more difficult to try to influence or deliver your campaign message. Absolutely. I think that would be, that would be a true statement, but that doesn't mean that it changes, you know, it change, it doesn't change the voting pattern in any way. It doesn't, it, it, it simply makes it diff more difficult for the candidates. And the thing about COVID is it doesn't just affect one's, one party or one candidate. It affects all of them. So everybody's got to yeah. deal with the same circumstance. Okay. Cool. So this last question, Bob. Um, is the this the zinger? Is, is, this, is this the one? The, this is the, zinger, the Borat question? Go ahead. <laughs> no, this is a – we would like you to just go absolutely in in demolishing our generation as a group. Um, we don't really want to hear any positives. We want you to roast us for what, as a group, we're bad at. Roast yeah. you for what you're bad at. Yeah. <laughs> just like, what about us is just so unbearable. Because I'm sure there's a lot of stuff. Listen, I'm, I'll, I'll roast us, but we want your take. You know, I, I, I it's, it's the... It's the little things that you always think about. Um, you know, I, I think that that it's not necessarily just your generation, but I think it's any generation. You don't realize what it takes to be an adult. You know, you're just becoming adults, so you don't realize what it takes to be an adult yet. And 
I, I think that that's something that, uh, that comes with experience and comes with maturity, but you know, just, just the little things that, uh, that you have to realize it's the small stuff that you have to do, whether it's from as much as taking out the garbage to paying the bills to, 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 to those type of things that you have to worry and think about, uh, as you become you, an adult. Do you think that's more inherent to our generation, uh, relative to other ones at the same age? I think every parent, uh, every parent looks at their kids and says, they don't know, you know, they don't know what they're doing. Um, and I think it's just a function of generation to generation. And the things that, the things that you guys have affecting you are different than the ones that affected me at your age. Um, you know, I, I didn't have the cell phones and the social media and all that other stuff that was available to me, but I still had a lot more at my age than my parents did at, at, at my age. So, you know, it, it all changes. But the, the, the fact of the matter is, is that the, the immaturity is something that you, I think every, every college age kid that, that, you know, thinks that they're capable of being an adult and handling all, all their responsibilities and circumstances of being an adult. And they want all those responsibilities, but I don't think that uh, everyone is mature enough to be able to handle those, all of those responsibilities just yet. And I think that that's just a natural coming of age kind of thing. Um, so I, I wouldn't roast your generation for that. I just think that it's something that's common amongst every generation as they move through. Um, that that's just something that they, that you have to, that, that comes with maturity and comes with age. All right. So it's not really a roast. I know you want me to really burn you somehow, but uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I got, you know, other than maybe you guys spend too much time on your phones, but then again, as an adult, I think I spend too much time on my phone, so I can't really <laughs> burn you for that. I mean, that was for a very sure. good answer. Honestly, that was, was a very good answer. Thank you. Yeah. Yo, you came out swinging tonight, Bob, with the good answers. Oh, I did. I did what I could do. What came out tell? swinging. Um, not quite like Wilma Flores, but yeah, that's back. Um, Bob Hellbach, man, we want to thank you for joining us on the pod. Um, I appreciate it. It's been my pleasure. Thank you guys. Good luck to you.